0: Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha to Omega. Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 62nd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday, the 7th of May, 2015, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show... Released quite a bit later than planned, is brought to you by the very generous monthly subscribers and, of course, by the new iTunes reviewer, Andrew D.L.Y. Muchos gracias. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and listen to it on your phone with TuneIn or Stitcher. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Michael Roberts, author of The Next Recession blog. We talk about the new reports put out on the world economy by the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements, and how Ben Bernanke has come out as a closet Marxist after all these years. We also discuss the recent debate between David Harvey on one side and Michael and Andrew Kleiman on the other, about the relevance slash reality of the law of the falling rate of profit and the politics behind all of this debate join the conversation, as I'm asking Michael whether there is a course on dust capital available in any UK economics department. I I have a question for you before we start. Is there any place in England or the UK where you can actually study capital as an economics course?
1: Uh, I'm not sure that there is. There's the two, if you like, heterodox universities, which is Kingston which has the post-Keynesian school under Stockhammer, uh, and now Steve Keen is head of department there. And uh, you've got Greenwich, which has got people like Oslem, Onarin and some others where, which, where Freeman was originally. And I think they have sort of semi-Marxist post-Keynesian things. But I don't know anybody that's giving a Marxist economics course, as far as I'm aware, or, cap- or a course on capital or anything like that. But then I'm not an academic, or at least i am not, not been in the academic world. I've been in the financial world making money rather than in a university
0: not making money. So, Michael, what does the IMF have to say about the current global economy?
1: Well, they every uh, half a year they produce what they call a World Economic Outlook report. This is usually just before their meetings that they have in Washington, um, where all the economists and officials and politicians come together to discuss the state of the capitalist world. And in those reports, not only do they have chapters about the state of the world economy, which way it's going up or down and so on, but they also have what you might call more specialist chapters, where they look at some of the long-term trends that are going on in capitalism or in the world economy and what the causes are. In their latest report, which was the April 2015 one, they had a couple of chapters which they talked about the issues of the stagnation that has existed in the world economy since the end of the Great Recession in 2009. After that, in the last six years, the overall growth rate in real terms, that's after inflation, for the world economy has been well below trend. It's the trend rate was something if you include all the emerging economies of China, India and so on as well as the uh, advanced capitalist economies like the US, the UK, Europe and so on. uh, The growth rate before the Great Recession was probably between 4 and 5 percent a year. Currently the growth rate is around about 3 to 3.5 percent. The IMF optimistically forecasts an acceleration each year but for six years, it's been disappointed in uh, achieving that. So the, the world economy is growing at something like, uh, say, a third to 40 percent below what it usually grows at. Now, the IMF has been looking, as it does, and other uh, international economic agencies too, at the reason for that. And they come down, interestingly, to the following conclusion. The main reason for the slowdown is a slowdown in the productivity growth rate. That's the amount of production per unit of worker in the world has slowed down. The increase in that has slowed down over the last five or six years and the main reason for that they think is because the level of investment in new technology by the big capitalist companies around the world in the major economies has also slowed. So despite quite significant increases in profits in the last uh, few years, uh, investment has not increased as a result technology has not been introduced that would increase the productivity of labor and given the fact that on the whole the world's population growth is beginning to slow particularly in the advanced capitalist countries so the ability of getting more production from more people uh, working and uh, being employed of working age is beginning to slow and now we have the productivity of each worker beginning to slow because the investment in new technologies is not taking place now There are different reasons for that. The IMF seems a little bit unclear about why. They suggest, and i put it to you, Tom, and the the listeners might want to think about this. They say the reason for the slowing in the investment is the lack of demand in the world economy. Now, you might ask, well, what do you mean by the lack of demand? What they mean is that uh, households, consumers, people like you and me are spending, they're still spending more, but not as much more each year than they used to. And secondly, companies are investing less or investing at a lesser rate than they did before. So it's a, it's a chicken and egg thing. They're saying the reason for the slowdown in the world economy's growth rate is slower investment growth. Slower investment growth is caused by slower growth in demand. Slower growth in demand includes slower spending by both households and uh, capitalist companies. Than, than before, or the increase in that. So it's it's really um, a tautology. There's slower investment growth because there's slower investment growth. It's not really an answer. So although the IMF has got halfway to it, in my view, they haven't got to the full way. Why does investment growth been slowing down? And, and I think if we look at what a Marxist economist would look at, is what what is happening to the
0: profitability of capital? You said earlier there that the profitability rate had had improved. Why, why would the capitalists not jump back into investing then if it's if it's improved recently?
1: This is a conundrum, yes, which we're, we're, many of us in the Marxist economics world are debating as well as in mainstream economics. The mass of total amount of profits has increased since the Great Recession, but it fell a lot, and so did the profitability. There's two differences, listeners should be aware. There's a difference between the total amount of profits that, say, an economy or a a capitalist sector produces and the profit per total investment that they've already advanced. So if you invest, say, $100 million in technology, factories, plants, equipment, and workers, and you get back $10 million, then you've got a rate of profit of 10%. The mass of profit is that $10 million. Now, that has increased significantly since 2009, but the overall investment to increase that mass of profit has also increased. Profitability, that's the uh, return per unit of investment, has also increased, but it's not at a level that's anywhere near the level that existed before the Great Recession. It's still lower and therefore there's a reluctance on the part of capitalists to really launch out on investment because they cannot see that they will get the return on new investment that they used to get before the Great Recession and in my view which is one of the I think one of the features of my particular view on this is that that is part of the explanation of why we have what I call a long depression since the end of the Great Recession you could describe it like this Tom that if the listeners know mathematics, they know what a square root sign looks like. Um, you've got a level that starts off, then it drops suddenly down, it recovers, but the new level is a little lower than the previous level. That's what a square root sign looks like and that's what the world economy looks like. It's recovered from that huge drop in 2008-9 and it's recovered but not to the same level both in investment, both in GDP on growth and also in profitability. Those and profits lead to investment, investment leads to growth.
0: So you're saying then that the, although the things have recovered, it hasn't, hasn't recovered a huge amount and that the profitability is still reasonably low or quite low when we look at it in the long term. Now, just to get our heads around some kind of figure, say for the UK economy, like what is the average return on capital in, say, the UK economy? And how does this compare... So so with a productive investment. And how does this compare to, say, what you get through a speculative asset like housing or financial markets?
1: Well, yes. Um, In the case of the UK, the government's official statistical unit called the Office for National Statistics actually publishes the profitability of UK companies. It's one of the few places in the world where you actually get a figure, which I would think is reasonably close, to how Marxists would calculate the rate of profit. And they find that at currently the overall profitability, that's the rate of return on all the capital which the UK companies hold, is about 11%. Back in 1997, which is how far the stats go on the official statistics, it was 14%. It fell down to something like eight or nine during the Great Recession, it's recovered to about 11 just over 11 but it's still lower than it was in the early 2000s and in 19 in the late 1990s so how much lower well that's 11 to 14 it's, it's not an insignificant amount it's something like 20 25 percent lower that makes a big difference to the attitude towards uh, investing particularly if p- new projects given the, the borrowing requirements and debt and so on really have to be at a sufficiently high threshold to make And capitalists have raised their threshold for what they think is a viable investment project to a level, on on average, which is probably higher than that 11%. 11%. They want more before they're prepared to make the investment. So So investment is slowed significantly. British business investment is really stagnating compared to
0: where it was before the Great Recession. So if, if, if say, the average rate of profit is 11% and these businesses might have to, to borrow money to invest, you know, they might have to borrow at, say, 7 or 8%. So they need to be hitting a, quite a high profit rate above the average to make a goal.
1: Yeah. and they, On the whole, what they find is they can do better by going into the financial sector quite often in speculative areas and make a better return on that, particularly if they use the borrowing to leverage up, as we, as they say in the financial world, you can leverage up your bet. So instead of just putting £10 down, you can go and borrow £100 and you can put £100 down on a financial bet and make a lot more money if you bet right. And companies are doing this in one sense, they're doing it by buying their own shares, so they're driving the price of their own shares up and they're borrowing money to do this because to borrow money is actually, you say seven or eight percent, it probably is for companies if they want to invest in new technology, they're going to be charged by banks seven or eight percent or they're going to have to raise a bond which is that high. But if they want to borrow money to invest in the financial sector, they can get quite cheap rates, at least because they're doing this on short-term basis, so rates are around about one percent or something rather than seven or eight if they're going to have to invest in something which may be ten years or five years to come to fruition.
0: So what does the BIS or the Bank of International Settlements have to say? How do, what do they see as the cause of this long-term stagnation?
1: Well, there is another school within economics called the Austrian School of Economics, which goes way back to the late 19th century and early 20th century, who reckon that the capitalist economy is a perfect system and works absolutely perfectly as long as uh, there's no interference. and The three main sources of interference, according to the Austrians, uh, that's an Austrian school started in Vienna by various economists. The three main areas of interference are either imperfections in the markets, monopolies, particularly monopolies in the labor market, namely trade unions, which drive up wages unnecessarily. Uh, secondly, monetary interference, setting up a central bank which tries to set the interest rates rather than let the market set the interest rate and also governments in general by interfering with regulations, by taxing people, stimulating markets and generally distorting the investment process. And By distorting the investment process these interferences lead to malinvestment so what you get is a a credit cycle a huge amount of investment going into things which are unproductive because it's been interfered with by these uh, forces outside the market. The market will be very efficient it would be an efficient market globally and in anywhere it operates if it wasn't interfered with by human beings, apparently, according to the Austrians, uh, and people trying to make things better for the majority. Uh, this interference causes malinvestment, causes a cycle of, of a credit boom and then a credit crash. So you, get, you have a booze up, you drink too much on credit, and then you have a hangover, which is really painful. And according to the Austrians and according to the Bank of International Settlements, which broadly follows this uh, thesis of, about the nature of, of capitalist economies, then the best thing to do in a hangover is not try to drink anymore, but just let the whole thing subside, liquidate all the failed sectors of the economy, make people unemployed if they can't produce productively or they cost too much. And when things settle down again, the market can recover as long as, of course, we don't have more interference. That's the BIS view. So they say currently at the moment there's been far too much interference. Uh, The Great Recession should have been allowed to find its own level and not be interfered with with monetary intervention by the Federal Reserve and other central banks or by fiscal policies to stimulate uh, spend more in order to try and keep the economy going, Keynesian style. None of these things work. They only make things worse. And that's the BIS view. So they disagree with the IMF. The IMF says the problem is we probably need some more public investment because there's not enough capitalist investment. And the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, says no, don't interfere at all. Let the market find its own level.
0: They came out on the side of Marx with respect to investment.
1: Yes, they, they saying that the well they're saying two things. They say actually the profitability investment's too low. Of course, they, they, they claim that this is probably due to interference, but they say the profitability investment is too low and there has been a huge credit binge, which has not been allowed to deleverage sufficiently and to be removed from the system so that profitability can rise. And until there's sufficient deleveraging, that's the favorite word. In other words, uh, lots of companies need to be made bankrupt. Debts need to be written off or paid down. And until that's done, then you can't expect the world capitalist economy to recover to previous levels and investment to pick up, because it's being blocked by this weight of dead capital and too much debt, which is still there. The BI spends a lot of time telling uh, everybody who reads their, I I can assure listeners, extremely boring publications uh, about the size of the debt which exists internationally in all the major economies, whether it's the U.S. The U.K., China, and so on, and that needs to be cleared. This is not the view expressed by the other agencies, who still hope they can get growth by actually stimulating the economy, even with more debt.
0: Now, I think I read somewhere that there's there's been a drop R and D research dollars spent by governments in the advanced economies since since the fall of the Soviet Union. Does this impact uh, on uh, productivity and investment for for capitalist economies, seen as how they often piggyback on state research.
1: Absolutely right. There's a a very good analysis of this sort of thing about the role of government and public investment in stimulating new research and development, new ideas, innovations technology and so on. I mean there's quite a good stories about how Apple was not a product of private sector innovation but of public sector ideas and innovation which were taken up. Um, We know the internet actually came from the public sector Originally, There are many other inventions too, particularly in health where that's the case. And um, there's a book by Maria Macanato, um, an Italian economics uh, professor in the UK at the University of Sussex about this role of the public sector in stimulating innovation and in R&D and how it's a vital factor because the capitalists on the whole are rather short-sighted or short-term in their attitudes they are not prepared to invest huge amounts of money in things like say the, the Hadrian Collider and so on, that's public money being invested to look at pure research at, a, at subatomic particles and the nature of the universe, that's not something uh, with the uh, uh, capitalist sector is prepared to invest in but eventually it may well produce something that's way way more valuable a return for capitalism if it can capture the use value from that and convert it into profit. So, yes, that process goes on continually, and you're right that the uh, investment by the government sector in this sort of innovation has dropped dramatically as a percentage of GDP in most economies in the last 25 years. It's a product of the change of capitalist strategy towards economies that started in the early 1980s and maybe a bit earlier, but about then, which we now call, at least in Marxist circles, neoliberal economics, the switch away from, as it were, the partnership between government and capitalist sectors in growing and improving an economy with government subsidies but government taxation, with government uh, investment but with government regulation. All that's gone and and the attempt is to replace it with just market economics, with capitalists making their own decisions paying as little tax as possible, corporation tax has dramatically fallen, not being prepared to subsidize any sort of welfare state which costs taxes to the capitalist class and trying to deregulate labor markets and markets in general from any government interference. That neoliberal policy which including privatization of our previous state sectors has led also to a collapse in public investment because the first thing that gets cut when budgets have to be cut and government spending has to be cut is government investment because it's the easiest thing to cut, the quickest one. And actually the American Society of Civil Engineers publishes a regular report, an annual report, on the state of infrastructure in the U.S. and the terrible collapse and degradation of bridges, roads, ports, all kinds of important infrastructure things which kept capitalism going, which depend on public investment, which have just gone by the wayside in this process of neoliberal reversion of the previous policy of government investment. And as a result, uh, probably a lot of new technology in R&D is missing and will be missed because the capitalist sector itself is unable to generate.
0: I heard that Ben Bernanke has come out started blogging in the recent few weeks.
1: Yes, uh, at least as will know that Ben Bernanke was the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the US from the early 2000s after the retirement of Alan Greenspan in the mid 2000s, was in charge of the Federal Reserve during the Great Recession. He was an economist before that, an academic economist who specialises in uh, in the causes of the Great Depression of the 1930s and what caused that. and His view was that he followed the view of another economist of the the post-war period called Milton Friedman who told, uh, with statistical evidence, that the cause of the Great Depression was first of all the Federal Reserve pumping too much money, credit, into the capitalist economy during the 20s and then pulling it back, causing the Great Recession in the early 30s. So it was the activities of the Federal Reserve which caused the Great Depression. And Ben Bernanke is well known, at least amongst us economists, for making a speech in 2002 in memorial of Milton Friedman. And he said, Milton, who was, I think, in his 90s by then, Milton, you explain what the Great Recession was and the mistakes of the Federal Reserve. I can assure you that we'll never make that mistake again. And when the Great Recession came, his policy was to pump in as much credit as possible from the Federal Reserve. Uh, to keep all the big investment banks that have caused the crisis alive and to use as much possible money, print money, to to do that, to give them sufficient liquidity that they could float above the crisis. This handout and bailouts, of course, eventually did cost American taxpayers a lot of money. Um, But his view, now that he's retired from the job, is that that was still right. That contrary to people who complain that the Federal Reserve hasn't played a good role in the crisis, that they have, and that they've kept by keeping interest rates very low, they've helped to keep the world economy growing. Because, as he says in his recent blog, that um, the reason that the world economy is being glowing, growing below trend as before, which is something we discussed before, is not because what the Keynesians say, a lack of demand which Larry Summers, one of the prominent Keynesians in America at the moment, former Treasury Secretary under Clinton, says is a sort of secular stagnation caused by uh, interest rates being too high and therefore consumer and investment demand being too low. Bernanke says that's not true. Interest rates are very low. Uh, What the problem is, is that although the natural rate of interest, as he calls it, is very low, profitability is also low. In fact, it's not much better than the rate of interest, and so no wonder there's no investment. So here we suddenly have the Federal Reserve Chairman telling us that if we look at the general picture of of American capitalism, because he only usually refers to America, it's due to uh, a very low rate of profit, and he also says that there's too much saving going on in the rest of the world, if they would spend more in China and Japan and Germany, because they've got big savings from their exports, uh, then that would help the US to grow, as if it takes a very American-centric view. But suddenly we have the chairman of the Federal Reserve or the ex-chairman in the Great Recession telling us that the cause of the current slow rate is a poor rate of profit.
0: So has he been a closet Marxist all the time?
1: I'm afraid not. Um, I think he would say that the solution to this is simply that uh, there's got to be more spending by the Chinese and so on and that the interest rates have got to be kept low as possible and then things will improve. And he still claims that the stagnation we see now is simply temporary uh, and will change because as long as interest rates are kept low and things are improving. So although he sees uh, a problem here, he says this problem is temporary, contrary to the view of the Keynesians on the other side of this mainstream debate, like Larry Summers and Paul Krugman, who argue that actually this lack of demand could well be permanent.
0: In the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, there was extremely high Fed interest rates when profitability was low. How, how does this mesh with Bernanke's theory?
1: The argument they would say, and it's perfectly true, I suppose, that if we had interest rates then being uh, proposed because the Federal Reserve and other central banks for listeners want to know generally try to set the most important interest rate the basic rate that banks can borrow they want money or credit from the Federal Reserve then there's an interest rate they're charged and so this is the basic rate in the case of in the UK the Bank of England actually calls it the base rate It's the base rate from that other interest rates rise and can be higher that the rate between banks that they charge each other then what banks charge other financial institutions and what they charge corporations and what they charge us on mortgages will be higher but the base rate that the central bank sets tends to set the rates throughout an economy or at least that's the idea, it's not entirely true, we can argue theoretically whether that's actually true so back in the 1970s and 1980s it was very high but the reason it was very high was inflation was extremely high. In fact, inflation peaked at a huge level for most economies in 1982, and the interest. So, if you exact figures, but say the inflation was in double digits, about 10%, and the interest rate being charged by the central bank was say 12%. So the real rate was two or three or four percent, not 12, 4, 13 or 15%. But when you deduct the inflation rate, then it was about three or four. Currently, uh, the base rate in most economies is what they call zero bound. It's pretty close to zero in most of the major central banks' rates, around about 1% or even less. But the inflation levels are pretty close to one or zero as well. So there's no real rate either. The real rate of interest is only slightly above zero. Back in the 1980s, it was a bit higher, it was more like 3 or 4 or 5% after inflation which was extremely restrictive upon the ability of capitalists to make money. If their real borrowing rate was something like 5% and they could only earn less than that or much more, then then investment was in deep trouble. So back in that, that period, there was a big drive by the central banks, led by Paul Volcker, who was then the governor of the Federal Reserve, to keep interest rates up really high in order to break the economy force it into a recession and get inflation down. So we have one of the deepest recessions in the post-war period between 1980 and 1982. And then inflation did indeed, during that big recession and onwards afterwards, begin to come down as people changed their attitudes about the likelihood of prices rising. And prices began to fall. And we've been in a long downswing of price increases, what we call inflation, from double digits down to 1% or 2%. In most economies now, and as a result, the nominal rate, the rate charged by the Federal Reserve has also fallen from very high levels to very
0: low levels. So I think Marx in capital talks about the link between the rate of profit and the interest rate. Can you talk about this this concept yeah, just dualism or
1: well, yeah, I mean the the view of mainstream economics is that there is no profit really. the most pure form of mainstream economics. Uh, of uh, neoclassical equilibrium economics says everything comes towards an equilibrium through factors of production so workers receive their wages labor gets produces a certain amount capital produces a certain amount so the return to capital is simply the productivity of the capital and land also produces a certain amount and there's rent there so uh, everything equalizes out workers get what they're entitled to capitalists get what there's not a profit in the sense of a surplus an exploitive surplus over and above what uh, workers get in wages. So in that sense, a concept of the profit doesn't exist in mainstream economics, particularly over the long term as it all goes, diminishes down to a level where everything is equal or uh, or disappears. This is the concept that they have about the nature of the process. But So that would mean that what you do have is interest, you still clearly have interest. So banks lend money people and they charge interest, people have to pay interest on what they borrow. That interest rate is set by the amount of savings, this is mainstream economics, is set by the amount of savings in, the, in, a, in an economy which is deposited with the banks by customers putting their deposits in, whether they're companies or you or me, and that savings is then lent to other people, borrowers, you or me or capitalists, at a rate of interest. And the actual rate is determined by how much savings there are compared to the demand uh, for investment or spending by the borrowers, and though the rate will move up and down depending on supply and demand, and that's it. There is no concept of profit. Now Marxist economics says that's just inadequate as an explanation for the rate of interest. It's true that the rate of interest is set, in a way, by the supply and demand for loan capital between bankers lending capital, lending credit, lending cash uh, and the borrowing requirements of the people who want to borrow it. So in that sense, the interest rate is set by that supply and demand, but it can never be higher than the total rate of profit. The rate of profit is the overall figure which sets it, because if it was higher, then the capitalist system would grind immediately to a halt. So interest rates tend to be somewhere in between the total rate of profit in an economy. So an industrial capitalist, if you like, somebody who's not a banker, that is selling Apple computers, if you like, gets a certain amount of profit on the total sales that it makes, but it may be borrowing from the banks at a certain rate of interest. So actually, its profit is really less than the total profit it gets on, on the production because interest has to be paid. And the difference is what its enterprise profit, if you like, profit rate is, but it that interest rate can't be higher than the total amount of profit in an economy that the capitalists are accumulating because then the capitalist system would grind immediately to a halt. So Marx's basis point about interest rates is that they will tend to fluctuate within uh, the rate of profit, the level set by the rate of profit and not fluctuate simply because bankers have a certain amount of savings. In, in on deposit and borrowers have a certain amount of loans that they want to take.
0: So if the currently we have the in say in the UK economy we have eleven percent profit rate, so if we had a twelve percent interest rate on deposits in the banks, pretty much every capitalist would go, why should I invest money in productive stuff with risk? I'll just leave it at the bank and I get twelve percent, and then productivity would just go to the floor.
1: Indeed, and this is exactly what is called the, uh, if you like, uh, liquidity trap, described by John Maynard Keynes, the uh, British economist of the of the 1930s, who said, look, capitalism will actually create a situation, uh, it can happen, where it's more profitable for industrial capitalists and anybody, really, to leave their money in the bank and keep it in cash and not spend and not invest. And you can get in a depression into a situation where liquidity preference, as you call it, becomes a liquidity trap. So money gets trapped inside the banks, inside the financial system. And therefore, there is never a recovery from the depression. Uh, And that, in many ways, is true. You can get into that situation. What Keynes did not, well, he did partly explain, he said, how could that happen? Why doesn't it recover? Because he said, the marginal efficiency of capital, or in other words, in some way he would put it, the rate of profit on capital was lower than this rate of interest being charged. And so the liquidity trap was established because the rate of interest was higher than the rate of profit. Now you think, oh, well, perhaps Keynes agreed with Marx. Only he doesn't explain why the marginal efficiency of capital is lower. There's no explanation of that. It just suddenly is. So his rate of profit falls for no reason, apart from some sort of change of attitude, what he called animal spirits by capitalists, and no other explanation is provided, which Marx does provide in his theory of of crisis and and profitability. But then also Keynes actually just forgets about that part of it and then concentrates on how we should get out of the liquidity trap by cutting interest rates, or if necessary, if that doesn't work, by governments spending more on investment that we just talked about before. So Keynes Keynes and Keynesians, like Paul Krugman, who's the big guru in the New York Times of Keynesianism now, have even written books in case of Krugman titled End Depression Now. He said, let's not worry about what caused the recession or the depression. Let's just work out how to get out of it. Uh, My view is that unless you understand what causes a recession and depressions, Yes, you may be able to get out of it by some method, but you'll only come back to another one later on unless you begin to grasp why we have recurrent crises of booms and slumps in economies, capitalist economies. And Keynes in economics, although he explains this point about the interest rate that you raised, Tom, does not explain how we got there in the first place.
0: There is an element of a kind of a reliance on some kind of mass hysteria to explain this phenomenon.
1: Indeed, there is uh, the view that the phrase was used as animal spirit, so that means to the listeners probably a bit weird. Uh, I think what is meant is if you can imagine you're getting into a euphoric state uh, in the case of America in an American football match and you're absolutely gung-ho about the side and then suddenly everything goes wrong and all that energy dissipates and uh, you'll feel depressed now and you won't do anything at all so you can get one moment you want to do absolutely everything and everything every investment works borrowing more money is a good idea it's fantastic and then suddenly it isn't and you shouldn't invest at all and everything goes into a state of depression so it's psychological so the analysis here is presented as some sort of psychological change in the attitude in particular of capitalist investors but also consumers about the state of the economy and what they what they're going to benefit how they're going to benefit from it but why does that happen? Why is it sudden? I mean, there are obviously some truths in that. Capitalists don't, at the moment, feel very confident about making big investments. They feel a bit depressed, if you like. They're very cautious. Uh, and consumers are depressed because they still have a lot of debt. Uh, and they're not happy about spending too much. I mean, Things have improved since 2009, but there's still that depression we feel exists. But why did that happen? And uh, what, is the, what are the circumstances that get out of it? You get out of that. Does it just have to? You have to have to wait, like the Austrians say, or do you have to sort of artificially stimulate people's enthusiasm by giving them another shot of beer, or what? There's nightness and asphenato and zyrtec and diazepam and lithium, tamazapam, midazolam, clonazepam, testosterone, aldosterone and valium and insulin and lignocaine, and periton and ventolin, and ritalin. There's kefirox and kefatax and kefalex and and metronidazole and ketoconazole, trimetropin, erythromycin, gentamicin, macrolides, myfedapin and actifed and pseudofed and carpal with no sugar in. There's phenylzine and hyacine, ranitidine, cementidine, potassium and calcium and every kind of vitamin and pethidine and methadone and speaker cane and heroin and cannabis and prozac morphine, alcohol and nicotine. You must remember all these drugs, the names of which you've learnt from me. Or fuck them all and get a job in orthopaedic surgery.
0: So, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about the brouhaha we've had between David Harvey and Andrew Klyman on Marx's law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall.
1: Yes, well, listeners may know or not know that Professor David Harvey in New York is a quite an eminent uh, economist. He doesn't consider himself an economist, but more a materialist or geographical materialist because that's his original discipline. David, Professor Harvey has written a number of books over the last 15 years about the nature of the capitalist economies both globally and why, and how they get into these crises and what directions they're going in and why capitalism doesn't work in a most efficient way for human beings and he's made some very important contributions in that theory but is not somebody that considers that Marx and he's a, a, a very a careful reader of Marx's capital and has a, a course on reading capital on his website which anybody can look at and go through with him, both by video and audio. He doesn't think that Marx has ever developed a very clear theory of why capitalism goes into a a series of crises one after the other. Just to explain to the reader what we mean by that, it's a huge huge slump in in the economy with high unemployment, people losing their jobs, uh, capitalists closing down factories, etc., and all kinds of other financial problems appear, and they will last for a few years and then recovery takes place and since the Second World War in the major economies we've had several of these in particular 1980-82, 1974-75 and of course what we now call the Great Recession in 2008-9. Now David Harvey doesn't think that these crises can really be explained by anything in Marx's works. Marx has a lot of different explanations for these crises but none of them are consistent and he hadn't really fully worked out. and therefore he considers those of us who do claim that Marx had a coherent theory of crises are reading far too much into Marx. In particular, those of us who say that Marx's theory of crisis is based on what you call Tom, the law of the tendency of rate of profit to fall. I'm not going to explain what that how that law works out exactly, but simply to say that we would argue that Marx does show, that what causes crises, these recurrent crises, is that there's a tendency for the rate of profit in uh, capitalist economies over a period of time to fall and listeners can see that if the profit of your investment begins to fall you may be very reluctant to make further investments if you're about to lose money. And at a certain point that profitability of each new investment actually turns into a loss. So investing more causes a loss and the total amount of profit that you had before in one year falls the next year, once the hot total amount of profit falls, you will start cutting back. You'll lay off labor, you'll close down some plants, and if that cascades through the rest of the economy, which you can easily do, particularly in a global economy now, you get a slump. Now, that we support that idea that in, in Marx's works as being the best explanation of crises on a current basis and fits the facts. that something David Harvey does not agree with. in most of his books, and in a recent paper uh, late last year after a seminar uh, of other eminent Marxist economists, he made a series of points outlining something like what I've said, namely first of all that um, Marx doesn't have a clear theory of crisis, he doesn't have a logical theory of crisis, and uh, there isn't any evidence to say that the rate of profit theory of crisis is right that there isn't empirical evidence to say that. One of the things, by the way, he says is, because, haven't you noticed, profits are going up at the moment? Just read the business press. Um, He's been supported by this by other uh, eminent scholars. One of those is a German scholar who reads all Marx's original transcripts, which are held in vaults in Amsterdam and and Germany, where you can read all the transcripts. And this is Professor Michael Heinrich, an erudite scholar who claims that uh, if you read Marx you can see he doesn't have a theory and in fact he drops the theory of profitability in his later life, or at least that's what uh, Professor Heinrich claims. Uh, David Harvey thinks that's very convincing and says that we need to look elsewhere rather than the law of profitability for an explanation of crisis. And in fact, every crisis has a different cause, according to Professor Harvey and there is no one general underlying cause of crises each one is different sometimes it's a stock market crisis sometimes it's uh, perhaps not enough wages sometimes it's too much debt sometimes credit sometimes it's this that and the other so it's multi causes and those of us who think there's an underlying general cause which explain crises mono causes like ourselves are really barking up the wrong tree so there's been a bit of a debate I replied to Professor Harvey on my blog post and in a paper and this is now going to be included in a collection of papers that uh, will bring together some of these arguments uh, that the University in Izmir in Turkey is going to publish next year, Harvey's paper and mine and others. Now Andrew Kleiman, whom I'm sure your listeners know well if they follow your podcast regularly, know that is another well-known Marxist economist, obviously not well-known amongst all economists, but only amongst us Marxist economists, um, who has written some excellent books on defending Marx's theory, law of value and his law of profitability being perfectly logical and consistent and providing an explanation of uh, capitalist crises and exploitation. And he's also written books trying to show empirically how that is also valid as an explanation of what's happened in the US with its various slumps uh, since the post-war period, as I have done in other works as well and many other Marxist economists who hold to the Marxist law of probability have done. Uh, And he's taken up David Harvey's arguments point by point in uh, his reply and papers as well. So this debate uh, continues. It has been going on continually amongst uh, Marxist economists, Tom, I have to say that the view that Marx had a coherent theory of crisis, and that theory of crisis of recurrent and regular crisis is due to the law of tendency rate of pro fall, is a minority view amongst Marxist economists. Most Marxist economists, and there's not many of us, probably think that it's that each crisis is a bit different, it's not due to this law of profitability and in particular the Great Recession isn't, because surely profits rose quite significantly and profitability from the 1980s up towards the Great Recession and therefore that couldn't be the cause. Well a number of us have written papers empirically to show yes it did rise, uh, not greatly, it's still way below where it was in the 1960s uh, in the US and in other countries because there's also international work and that it actually started to fall profitability globally and in the US in the early 2000's so that profitability was falling before we got to the Great Recession at a level which was still below the 1960's and then the mass of profit falls. We can actually show that profits started to fall in total before investment and the crisis began some 12 to 18 months before. Profits lead investment down Investment goes down, investment's the key cause of a recession, so the linkage, the causal linkage between the law of profitability, as Marx expounded it in capital and other works, and crises, can be made, and we think that argument remains valid, despite the criticisms of Professor Harvey and the majority of other Marxist economists.
0: I think I've watched the video of Professor Harvey from that conference he gave in Turkey on this, given this paper. And as far as I remember, he said that his general diagnosis of the Great Recession was that it was from a crisis of overaccumulation. Now, I take it from this, he means that there's a lack of good investments around and it's not a problem with the rate of profit per se. Can you just talk a little bit on, on what he would mean here by overaccumulation?
1: I have to struggle with Professor Harvey's explanation because it's not very clear to me exactly what he is saying. Sometimes he says it's due to sort of overproduction or uh, too much credit causing uh, capitalists unable to make, they've got too much debt so after the credit crunch and therefore future investments don't look very profitable. And as you say, it's going to be an over-accumulation, which we take to mean, listeners, that he means that Capitalists keep producing for production's sake. They invest for, for investment sake. They accumulate and accumulate, as Mark said, without considering whether they're going to get realize a good profit on that. Suddenly they find they don't. Investment opportunities start to fade. And uh, they're left with a load of uh, factories and plant and technology and commodities that they can't sell. And we have a slump. Well, that's... And a slump, by the way, by definition, is having too much labor, too much factories, too much commodities. It's not really an explanation. It seems to me that Professor Harvey's explanation of crises is really a description of them when you're in it without explaining how we got there in the first place. Unless we're just going to say that capitalists go on blindly investing and producing way beyond what they can sell in markets. But then why can they sell them in markets for periods of time without uh having a crisis they 're not being able to sell maybe for ten or twenty years they can do it without any real blips, and then suddenly they have a nightmare uh, that, it doesn 't seem to me that that 's a sufficient explanation unless you 're going to say, which is what we 're offered is that each nightmare has a different cause sometimes it 's because you drank too much whiskey uh, and sometimes it 's because you drank too much beer. Or sometimes it's that you starved yourself of water. There's always a different explanation, but there's no explanation of why you keep
0: doing these things. (laughs) When I look at these different arguments a lot of times, it seems to me that behind the veneer of of these discussions, that there is sometimes a, a political reason for why people make certain arguments. If the empirical evidence is, you know, not that hard to find out, and it, it looks pretty good for the long-term rate of profit, what, what do you think could be the the political reason that might be driving a lot of Marxists to kind of disregard this kind of empirical evidence?
1: Well, here we're into a controversial area, Tom, because I, I've tried to avoid, you know, trying to avoid putting political motives on people who are presenting academic arguments. But you have, a, you have a point because the one thing that connects all the people who disagree with the, the explanation I provided for crises that I think is in Marx's works, namely the law of the tendency of rate of profit to fall. The one thing that people who disagree with that agree on is that they provide explanations which actually capitalism could solve for itself. So if it's a question of too lower wages or too much inequality, which is the argument we get from some Marxists, and and for non-Marxists like Thomas Piketty in his latest book, inequality is a terrible thing and it's getting worse, then all we have to do is adjust the inequalities uh, through taxation or whatever methods, or raise wages, and capitalism won't have economic crisis. It might have a political battle, but it won't have economic crisis. Or alternatively, if it's caused by too much credit, then maybe we need regulation of the banks, control of the banks, we need to stop credit being allowed to get out of control which often capitalist politicians consider as as things to do. Either way it's not the actual process of private ownership of the means of production by uh, owners of capital employing people like you and me who only got their labour power to sell and they own the factories, they own our labour power when we go to work for those hours and the products of everything that the 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 economy of all our people in common produce is owned by them and they sell it for a profit or they don't allow it to be produced. That system, capitalist system, is is where Marx starts from. But these, uh, if you have an explanation which says that that system works fine, it's simply there are a few problems in the financial sector or things get a little out of true on inequality, we can correct that, and then the capitalist system of production can work fine, opens up the possibility that you don't need to get rid of it, and therefore opens up the possibility that you don't require a revolutionary change in the way that human social organization takes place. Capitalism hasn't always been around that system. Before that we had feudalism, despotism, slave societies, all different ways of organizing human organization. It's not been eternal. And despite what mainstream economics and uh, the consensus says, it won't be eternal. It's not efficient. It's not taking human beings forward. Uh, There is ultimately, and I think I'm sure most Marxist economists would agree with that. Otherwise, they can't call themselves Marxist. But the point is that they say that they don't come up with an economic explanation of why capitalism is continually in contradiction. It doesn't have to be in contradiction if you adopt these other explanations and therefore you can adopt what we call a reformist view. You can reform capitalism rather than get rid of it. And that may be where you start to see the point you're making, that it leads to a different conclusion about what to do politically and in action about the capitalist system we're in and the exploitation and the waste and the war that we have. And this is not new. There are lots of Marxists who eventually claim that you could just reform capitalism in the history of the labor movement in the last 150 years. And many of our Marxist economists, if they don't have a a view that there is an, an essential contradiction which causes recurrent crises, or these crises are just a series of different things which aren't related to the actual mode of production, open themselves up to adopting a reformist view about capitalism.
0: Yeah, I, I, in that lecture I watched, he also said, which I, he has said before on on his videos that I've watched when I was reading capital myself, that he doesn't consider, say, for example, the organic composition of capital to be a coherent concept. So that's like the composition, organic composition of capital is the ratio of, say, human labor versus, say, you know, capital on machines and on other parts. So he says that he doesn't see that that is a coherent concept, which I just find very strange. I just don't understand how, you know, people have no problems with, you know, general relativity and quantum mechanics, which are (laughs) extremely hard concepts to get your head around. When you've got something that's relatively simple, like organic composition of capital, to say that it's incoherent, it just seems kind of, I I, I just, I'm kind of, I get flabbergasted when I hear these type of comments by Marxists about Marxist work.
1: It's beggar's belief. I mean, it's a very simple thing for listeners to understand that what Marx said in volume one and throughout all his works was one of the biggest features that we can notice about the development of capitalism is the expansion of huge amounts of what we might call dead labor, in other words, not human beings to make things. Human beings no longer just make things with their hands, they use tools, and then as they go on, the huge amount of development of technology in factories, all kinds of plants and technology mechanization is a huge cost and also in just in, in numbers relative to human beings. There's been a dramatic increase in that ratio between the investment in machinery and technology, plants and all that again, and all the raw materials from around the world that we extracted from the earth, and we circulate around to use against the number of human beings. The facts are there. That's clearly increased relative to the number of human beings working. That's how productivity of labour has increased. And that's the nature of the capitalist process. It's self-evident that it's increased and the data show it. How you can anybody could say that that's irrelevant to understanding what's going on in capitalism or is not coherent, it does beg a belief. I don't believe it. I do not
0: believe! I don't believe it! I don't believe! I don't don't believe it! Michael, you've also sent out a profit warning alert a few months ago.
1: Yes, uh, capitalists uh, often send out profit warnings in the Financial Times and other financial papers, pointing out that they're not going to make the profit target that they the shareholders had hoped for. Uh, I sent out a profit warning on the world economy recently, and I'm saying that uh, if we look at global profits at the major economies, the total amount of profits are no longer growing at the rate that they were before, in fact if we combine the profits of capitalist sectors in China, the US, UK and Europe, Japan, uh, it's heading down towards zero. In other words, no growth at all. Now, what I've found looking at the data is that when profits grind to a halt like that, it's not long afterwards, say 12 or 18 months afterwards, that investment grinds to a halt and we go into a recessionary downturn. In other words, we have the slump that we've been talking about. And I've made that profit warning. if. If the data continue to show a slowdown and then perhaps even a contraction in overall global profits, either in one major economy or or a big five, if you like, then uh, we're in a position where we could be heading to a new recession within the next 18 months or so. So I'm making a prediction. Dangerous things to do. Weather forecasters can't get things right. I'm continually told by my fellow Marxist economists who should never make forecasts because mainstream economists always get everything wrong anyway. Um, But nevertheless, there it is, Tom. i put it out there and saying that I'm trying to use the theory and the laws that Marx has helped us to explain what's going on in capitalist economy and come up with a prediction that if profits continue to stagnate or even fall in the major economies, we could enter another recession within the next 18 months or so.
0: Well, watch this space. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Michael. Thank you. On this episode, you heard the team tune. The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and orchestra, and John Waite with Missing You. You also heard The Amateur Transplants with The Drug Song, Victor Meldrew and Disbelief and you are now listening to Booker T and the MGs with Green Onions. Thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And remember want to leave a review for the show on iTunes, instructions are included in the show notes.